Uh, we just completed the studies uh, through Micah chapter 1 to 5, and now we come to chapter 6, uh, Micah 6, 1 to 5. Hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he'll contend with Israel. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? Have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Bala king, king of Moab devised and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my husband for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness? And to walk humbly before, uh, to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord Christ, the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the Lord of Him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure what that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked skills? And with a bag of deceitful weights, your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you've kept the statutes of Omri. And all the works of the house of Ahab. And you've walked in their councils, that I may make you a desolation. And your inhabitants are hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. What a chapter to read. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for we know that in every portion of your word there is, a uh, there is a promise. And we know, dear Lord, that your promises find their yes and amen in your son. So we pray, Lord, that your blessings may be upon us this, this afternoon as we hear your word. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. To be accused at a court of law is not the best of experiences. I remember sometimes Brother Martin, no, first of all, we were driving with uh, uh, Pastor Kevin, uh, I think two, three years ago, and the Google Maps misled us, and we found ourselves in the hands of a corrupt police officer. And he dragged us to the police station, and we were accused. And uh, Brother Martin took me to the court to pay the fine. And we spent the whole day there, very, very nasty experience at Milimani Law Courts. Um, but uh, in all that, you see how ugly it can be where there are corrupt practices. But the court system or the judicial system itself is God's idea. And, and you see it clearly here in this chapter where God paints this picture of being at his court and he's asking you questions and you need to have satisfactory answers. So the passage before us, verse 1 through 5, we have God pressing churches against his people Israel for infringing the terms of the covenant. If they repent of their sins and offenses, they will be restored to the king's favor. But if they don't, they will face his full wrath. He calls you to plead your case, he says. He calls the witness of the mountains and the hills. Then he questions them and reminds them of the past. That's the setting of the passage. Now I need to say that determining the historical setting is, un is uncertain. We cannot for sure say that this happened uh, during the reign of Hehaz or Manasseh, but we know that it's within that kind of period. Now, if you look at the passage, the, the world chapter, uh, perhaps, you know, you see the voice of Yahweh. And, and in verse 1 through 5, he is assembling his arguments and his witnesses. And then verse 6 through 7 is a voice of a worshiper responding. And then the there is verse 8 where Yahweh, the voice of the prophet, is, is correcting. And then verse 9 through 16, we see God's verdict, the judge's verdict. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and he goes on to give his judgment. And he's asking such questions. Shall I acquit you? No. Almost like a judge would, would do. So we learn from this passage what to do when the Lord calls us to answer his case. We also learn to be grateful to the Lord for his blessings upon us and not to complain. 
He calls us so that we can hear him, verse 1 and 2. Hear his case, his indictment, his reasons, his charges. And then remember who we are and whom the Lord is. So this will enable us to speak advisedly and act in a godly way in every situation. We must realize that the Lord has a case against us when we act contrary to his word. And he commands and demands our full loyalty. So let's delve into this text, verse 1 through 2. We are told to hear the Lord. Then verse 2 through 4, the Lord has his indictment against his people. And then uh, verse 4 is the reason for the indictment. And then verse 5 tells us how to act. In other words, we have to remember God's saving acts. Verse 1, hear what the Lord says. I don't know whether you might remember the Rabsheke sent by Sennacherib and how he faithfully represents the king in Israel, in Judah, in Jerusalem to be specific. This is the kind of the way that Micah writes. He reasons with people. And he is here as Yahweh's messenger or advocate in a legal proceeding, the prophet. And the imperative here then to hear the Lord is, as you know, it's all over the scriptures, but right now you have to listen. You cannot turn your, cannot ply your ears. You must hear what he is saying. He is God. You must remember that. He is God. We are his creatures. He is God, the almighty and sovereign who reigns over us. He is God who made all things and and they all belong to him. We belong to him. So we owe him praise and thanks. We owe him our service. We must not question his word, for he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. So our God speaks here when he says, hear what the Lord says. He is saying, this is not me. This is not Micah. This is Yahweh. His word is written. He, he commands and establishes his rule. He speaks. And his reign is forever established. He, he speaks to reveal himself. And we need to see this as his mercy. In fact, that God speaks to us is his great mercy. Because if he were not to speak, we would have no way of knowing him. So hear what, the, what Yahweh says if you want to live well. Micah tells the people to arise and plead their case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. The mention of the mountains and the hills show the multitude or rather the magnitude of the accusations against the people. Jehovah has spoken with the people very often 
in different times, in different ways, and using different messages. Remember that at this time Micah is writing, there is another prophet who is also speaking, Isaiah. He pleads and appeals before the mountains and hills as though to say, the mountains do neither hear nor understand. But you're better off speaking with them and pleading your case, and your case will get nowhere. And it's also like he is telling them when he, when he draws the witnesses of the mountains and the hills, it's as if he's saying, I am better off reasoning with the mountains and the hills and the depths of the, of, of the earth than to you, obstinate people and a perverse generation. So the Lord prefers to speak with them rather than, I mean, the Lord prefers to speak with the mountains and the hills rather than with his people. Then he says in verse 2, Hear you mountains. That is, God calls senseless mountains and hills to be his witnesses. All creation bow before Jehovah, for he made them all. Therefore, mountains and hills should be the best witnesses of the great God. When you look at the mountains, their majesty and their grandeur, you realize that the one who made them is greater. So, so some take mountains here and hills as metaphorical to refer to uh, the leaders and rulers of Israel. But there's enough evidence to show that Micah is not speaking metaphorically here. He's speaking plainly to show the hardness of the, of the people as of rocks and mountains. And so just as rocks and mountains would not and cannot move, so are the people of God. They would not hear anything. The whole world should be astounded at the obstinacy of, the, of God's people. In fact, it's even more shocking that instead of the Lord threatening, denouncing, and cursing, and condemning these obstinate people, he's actually pleading with them. He's reasoning with them. This is like Isaiah saying, come, let us reason together. Come, let us reason together, though your sins be as red as crimson. This is God reasoning with them. So when we consider who he is, our response should be, the Lord is king. Who shall dare resist his will or distrust his care or murmur at his wise decrees or doubt his royal promises? Who? We should be ever saying, holy and true are all his ways. Uh, let every Creature, speak his praise. What is the indictment of the Lord against his people? He says in verse 3 to 4, 
Oh, my people, what have I done to you? In other words, what harm have I done to you? And this is a question that you, you should ever be asking yourself when you act contrary to the word of God. What harm has the Lord done to you? Is there any harm that the Lord has done to you? Hasn't the Lord been blessing you and blessing you and blessing you? Then why, why do you act contrary? Why do you conduct yourselves in a manner that speaks as if the Lord has wearied you, as if the Lord has become a burden to you? Here he says, answer me. What have I done to you which is harmful? What is it that I have done to weary you and to burden you? Answer me. The mountains and foundations are the witnesses. So God's creation is a witness against those who rebel against him. But the mountains and the enduring foundations of the earth are called as witnesses against God's people considering God's word. Again, you see how the Bible is watertight truth. As I was telling you early in the Lord's Supper. The law said, by the witness of two or three witnesses, you shall establish the truth. By the evidence of two or more witnesses, now, when the Lord is indicting these people, when he's judging them and he calls witnesses, who does he call? He calls the mountains in plural. And he calls the hills in plural. In other words, he is saying, I have a watertight case here against you, my people. So how is it that Yahweh has extended a covenant of grace, made a people who are not his people, his own people, and delivered and ransomed them from the greatest perils, and now they've turned their backs against him, against their benefactor? God has nothing against the mountains and the hills. Rather, he is seeking his people out of his mercy and grace. Oh, my people. Oh, my people. Oh, my people, what have I done to weary you? How has the Lord wearied you? Now, you, you realize that that question presupposes that peop, the people here had an accusation against the Lord. And the Lord takes that accusation now and he wants to deal with it. You have accused me of doing something to harm you. Produce it. You have accused me of being a burden to you. Show the proof of that church. How has the Lord wearied you? God's word and God's promises had wearied the people 
That's very much like us, isn't it? You know, people come from churches where they have been abused, error has been taught, they have imbibed things that are not biblical, and they come here very excited, and they imbibe everything being taught, they are here for Sunday school, they are here for the morning service, they are here for the afternoon service, they are here for the tea plot, and by the way, there would be tea plot tonight. But then, familiarity began to breed contempt. And people who are coming early, they begin coming only for the morning service. And they go back after the morning service. And the afternoon service has fewer people. Now, I know that there are those who are indeed going to attend to such means that are right, that are within the right use of the, of the launch day. But many of them don't. In other words, the afternoon service becomes weary to them. The brotherly fellowship and communion becomes weary to them, becomes a burden to them. Again, God asks you this question. How have I wearied you? Answer me. Have I wearied you by having my word explained? Is that weary? Does this send you to sleep? Answer me, the Lord says. I've given you my grace. Is grace burdensome? Is my mercy a burden? Is my love tiring? What? What's, what is it? Present it before me. I'm willing to listen. Answer me, the Lord says. God in his grace and kindness lowers himself. He condescends himself to reason together with them. Come, let us reason together. He does, want, he does not want them to perish in their rebellion, but he wants to bring them back to his fold and bring them eternal blessings. But God had not been wearied by them. Clearly, he had not. He would not be speaking like this he was, if he was tired with them. Again, you, you see his mercy there. He's not saying, okay, you think that I am a burden. Fine. He doesn't say that. He's saying, how have I wearied you? Answer me, he's saying here. And then look at how he calls them. He says, oh, my people, verse 3. Oh, my people, remember, verse 5. In this expression, God is endearing them, endearing himself to them. By using this expression, God renders their wickedness double. Because you see, they had rejected his goodness and they had preferred the evil of the world. Here is a case of a baby fleeing away from, from, from his mother 
and going to the dragon. The baby abandons the mother for a python. They had rejected his goodness. They had preferred the evil of the world. A baby and fled from his mother's nursing breast. Answer me, the Lord says. And who can answer God and testify against the Holy One of Israel? What answer? What justification? What reason did people have for thinking evil of the Lord, of Yahweh? God, who had made a covenant of grace with them. So here is a legal challenge to prove their allegations and their baseless accusations against God. And you know what? They had zero. They had none. Who can answer back to God? And Job knew that. And what's the reason for this strong indictment? Verse 4. After God had testified and defended his innocence and righteousness in dealing with his people, and that he had not caused them any trouble, he now moves to show why he is justified in indicting them. He shows them that, that the blessings that he had given them and the benefits that they had received from him, that they had no excuse. And he had two. He said that he had given them redemption. And he had given them good leaders. He says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. I can almost imagine the people saying, eh, I wasn't there, Lord. Because of their obstinacy. They're saying, this is, this, is, this is 700 years after the redemption from Egypt. Lord, there's no way I am 700 years old. What are you talking about? Because you look at the way the Lord brings these out to them, it's as if... This is the same community that had been redeemed. Yes, it's their forefathers 700 years earlier, but what does it matter? If their fathers had not been redeemed from Egypt, would they be in Canaan right now? Would they be in Jerusalem right now? No. So what difference does it make that 700 years have gone? It's like you saying now, um, uh, you know, we're singing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And you're saying, uh, he paid 700 years ago. Well, he said he paid 2,000 years ago, excuse me. But really, what does it matter? The, the ransom that was paid 2,000 years ago is as powerful now as it was then. The redemption from the slavery of Egypt was as effective to the people in Judah then as it had been when God had those people walk into walk through the wilderness. There's no difference. In fact, the current generation is better off because the guys who had left Egypt 
most of them, the Bible says God. With most of them, God was displeased. And where did they die? In the wilderness for the 40 years. They wandered there. But those who arrived, these are their remnants, and they need to be very thankful to God. And you see, he brought them out by his power, powerfully. By this word, redeem, it shows the great price he gladly paid to ransom them, to secure them out of trouble, of slavery. He purchased them. He ransomed them. He delivered them. This is what the Lord did for them. They ought to thank God for it, not to accuse him of wearing them. Then he sent them Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He sent to them Moses to be their deliverer of both, uh, as both a prophet and as their de facto king. It is Moses who was a minister of their deliverance in upholding, upholding the civil order of the people. It is Moses that God revealed himself and his law through the Ten Commandments. He sent Aaron as their high priest to maintain spiritual discipline of the people. He sent Miriam to be their prophetess and a leader of their women and to lead in praising this great God and Redeemer. God gave them good leaders. When there was proper theocracy in Israel, I gave you good leaders, is what God is saying. And then, what did you do? You said, you don't want those. You said you would prefer a king that you have chosen. And so he gave them Saul, the son of Kish, the Benjaminite. And so many others like Manasseh and, and Hares and Omri. And you talk about Omri later on in verse 16. In other words, I did you good, you did yourself evil. Who stands accused? And lastly, remember the saving acts of the Lord. How do you escape the indictments and the charges that the Lord brings? How? It is by remembering the saving acts of the Lord. Remember his righteous deeds and praise him who died to save you. When you remember these saving acts of the Lord, you will trust him more. The act of remembering God and his mercy and his works is an act of faith. I repeat. See, when you remember the Lord, you remember his works, that's an act of faith. Because faith recalls what God has done. Even when faith is under trial, it remembers who God is and remembers what he has done. It remembers the loving kindness of God. It remembers the mercies of the Lord never ceases. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. This is mercy. I mean, this is faith. Faith remembers that the Lord Jehovah reigns and we are all held accountable. 
Faith remembers the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sake, so that by his poverty we might become rich. Faith remembers Jesus Christ raised from the dead of the seed of David as preached in my gospel. Faith remembers the death and the resurrection of Christ. Faith remembers. Faith never forgets. So God very briefly reminds them of what he has done, he had done for them. Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, schemed. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him by my command. Remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. Remember that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Remember that you may know the righteousness of Yahweh. So God very briefly reminds them. Faith does not need many words to be activated. Faith is sparked by a slight reminder from God's word. And so the Lord reminds them of Balak's devices and of Balaam's divinely induced blessings and of Shittim and of Gilboa and all such saving acts of the Lord. There are three, three, three things which are brought to remembrance. First of all, remember the history of God with his people. That's why we read the Old Testament. That's why we read of Abraham and of Noah. And that's why then Hebrews 11 reminds us of them so that our faith may be built up. Hear the words, oh my people. It's a speech that imports three things. When he says, oh my people, he is saying, he is saying I claim you as my possession because you are my people. When God calls them, oh my people, it's a speech of love and affection. The one that you love, you call him mine. And it is a speech of recall and invitation, inviting them to his grace, inviting them for forgiveness, inviting them to receive their inheritance in Christ. Oh, my people, remember, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, a redemption from a long and tedious bondage under the hands of the Egyptians by God's righteous and powerful hand, Yahweh delivered them from a grievous and miserable bondage where they made bricks without straw. The Lord redeemed them from a vile and base bondage where their helpless infant boys were murdered at birth. Remember the history. Remember the history by reading the scriptures. And then secondly, remember the providential dealings with God. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised against you. His devices, his schemes were not only physical and military, but they were spiritual and wicked. wicked. He meant wickedness. He meant to bring curses upon you. 
And he meant to take away your blessings from me. And in fact, it can be argued that of all the, the inhabitants of Canaan, King Balak was the worst. Because he did not only assemble his armies against the people of God, he also wanted them cursed. And here is a great evidence that God watches over his people against all attempts of, of all the malicious enemies. Because God defeated Balak. And God defeated Balaam. Their conspiracy became a blessing for his people. And it can be said that there is no weapon fashioned against God's people that can prevail because God is on their side. Even if all the devils and the demons and Satan himself were to come, and they are always in league, and they were to come all in league against one Son of God, as it happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. What they have schemed and devised against the Lord and against his anointed becomes what? It becomes nothing. It becomes a bubble before the Lord. And so, Yes, you Jews were gathered together, scheming, with the Gentiles, scheming, and with Pilate, Pilate scheming against Christ, God, by his own predetermined will. God, by his hand, was going to use that very scheme that very wickedness, that very evil to bring about redemption and salvation, not just for the Israelites and the Jews, not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles too. So, who are your enemies? The devil, the world, flesh. Name them. The Lord blows them off by the bread of his mouth. Even when that man of lawlessness is revealed, the Lord will blow him by the bread of his mouth. And all his schemes and all his weapons and all this, the deceitfulness is brought to nothing. And so... Martin Luther's son, if all the tiles at that building in Worms were demons, the Lord Jesus shall slay them all. And this makes up this, the full sum and measure of God's goodness to his people. Remember the providential dealings. Of the Lord. How many times has the Lord delivered you from trouble? Has his power been depleted? Yes? Does God need to recharge his cells? His batteries? No. And then remember the great salvation of the Lord. Yahweh reveals these obstinate people 
his saving hearts and his righteous deeds, which greatly vindicates his ways. He turned Pharaoh's demands into deliverance. He turned Moses as Tamarah into a great leader and a deliverer. He turned Aaron into that great idolater, into high priest, and Miriam, that murmurer, into a praise leader. He turned Balak's devices into weapons to destroy strongholds. He turned Balaam's curses into blessings in bringing them from Shittim. Now, Shittim was the last encampment to Canaan into Gilgal, the first lodging in Canaan, the promised land. And the Lord secured them a place of rest for his people. He did. And you see, because the Lord did that in the past, he is able to do that in the future and in the eternity to come. And now there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has rested from his works as God did from his. There it was, between Shittim and Gilgal, that upon the death of Moses, Joshua, a type of Christ, was raised up to put Israel into possession of the land of promise and to fight their battles. There it was that they passed over through the flooded Jordan. Jordan divided. And it was there that they renewed the covenant of circumcision. These were mercies of God to their fathers, and they must now remember them so that they may know the righteous acts of the Lord, God's righteousness and His justice upon His people, so that they may stop saying that He's wearied them. God's righteousness is His justice in destroying the Canaanites, but it is also His goodness in giving rest to His people. It is His faithfulness to His promise meant to the fathers. So the remembrance of what God had done to them might convince them of all this and engage them forever to His service so that they stop complaining. Let them remember God's many graces to them and their fathers and compare with their own unworthy, ungrateful conduct towards Him, that they may know the saving acts of the Lord in contending with them. And it may appear that in this controversy, God is right. God is vindicated. His ways are just, for He will be justified when He speaks and righteous when He judges. So just as Israel of old uh, we we can draw stones and I know we can really really draw stones at Israel of old but brethren just as they were we are to know these acts not merely as data but as the evidence of God's goodness and grace toward us who believe, so that we can more gladly trust, obey, and serve Him. Remember how the Lord has mercifully dealt with you and removed you from the domain of darkness, 
And where has he conveyed you? Into, into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his son. And where has the Lord taken your sins and cast them? Into the depth of the ocean. And he has taken your sins away from you as far as the east is from the west. Remember the grace of the Lord in saving you by the sacrifice of his son on that cursed tree. He took your curse and became curse for you. Remember that. Remember that the Lord did, did not leave you as an orphan, but sent his spirit to indwell you and to make you a partaker of eternal life. So in conclusion, my dear brothers and sisters, God appeals to his ancient mercies and he appeals to you today. He kept them upon record. He registered them up, up in his book, the Bible. He framed them into songs of commemoration. He put them in the form of an oath. He founded the ordinance of the Lord's Supper for your remembrance, which we had today as a commemoration to remind us. These remembrances are provocations of thankfulness and obligations to obedience and encouragements of our faith. They are. So keep close in faith to Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. Grow closer to Christ. Love Christ. Serve Christ. Life for Christ is the best life. For there is nothing better than him. No one greater than him. All those who have trusted upon him are safe. Amen.